Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Okay, so true confession on this one. This episode is inspired by one of my cats. Yeah, but (laughs) simultaneously fascinating and a lot older than I thought. Yes. um, It's not about kitties or animals really at all, although they are mentioned in terms of um, medical testing. Nothing particularly gruesome, but just FYI if that's troublesome for you. Um, It is, in fact, about science because my cat, Ozzel, was hyperthyroid, and so we opted to have radioiodine therapy uh, treatment for him. And as my vet was describing this to me, and she's like, oh, it's just like how they do it in humans, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I have never thought about this before. <laughs> Where did this all begin? <laughs> um, so I, it just got me wondering about the origins of this treatment, um, because it is a very um, successful treatment, and it's one of those things that both humans and animals seem to respond well to, which just was fascinating to me, because as you know, I love a little bit of science. So That is what we are talking about today, uh, the advent of radioiodine therapy. So first, we're going to talk just a little bit about your thyroid and how it works. Your thyroid is a small organ that sits below your larynx. And in the most basic terms, its job is to convert the iodine and the food you eat into hormones that regulate your metabolism. Thyroid cells are the only ones in the human body that take in iodine, but all of the other cells in the body are affected by the work that the thyroid does. So the hormone known as thyroxine, abbreviated as T4, and the hormone triiodothyronine, known also as T3, are vital to normal metabolic function. But the thyroid, which makes those, again, out of iodine, isn't out there just functioning solo. It is regulated by the pituitary gland, which is in turn regulated by the hypothalamus. If your thyroid isn't producing enough hormone, that's called hypothyroidism. And it doesn't present really obvious symptoms at the beginning a lot of the time, but it can lead to other problems, including obesity and heart disease. Normally, hypothyroidism is treated with synthetic hormones to get the level of thyroid function back up to normal. And if your thyroid is producing too much hormone like my cats, (laughs) that is known as hyperthyroidism. And in this case, it sort of overclocks the body's metabolic function. So in this case, unintentional weight loss and rapid heart rate and even irregular heartbeat are all symptoms, which obviously can lead to some pretty serious problems if they're left unchecked. The advances in thyroid treatment that we're going to talk about today took place less than 100 years ago, but thyroid disease has been part of recorded history going all the way back to 2700 BCE when seaweed was prescribed in China to treat goiter. The goiter is a swelling of the thyroid that's most commonly caused by low iodine. But the thyroid itself wasn't even recognized and illustrated until Leonardo da Vinci drew it in 1500, The name thyroid didn't exist until 1656 when Thomas Wharton named it using a word for shield because of the resemblance in shapes to ancient Grecian shields. In 1820, Jean-Francois Quandé made the connection between iodine and goiter and began to use iodine as a treatment. 
By 1831, iodine used as a prophylaxis to prevent thyroid disease was proposed by a Brazilian doctor. But even so, conclusive scientific literature establishing iodine as a necessity to thyroid function was not published until 1907 in a paper by Dr. David Marine. And it was Marine's work in thyroid research that eventually led to iodized salt as a standard approach to preventing thyroid disease as a public health initiative. I like how uh, it was 1907 when that happened, but using seaweed to treat goiter is <laughs> from thousands of years before. They were on to it. They yeah. just hadn't done all the math on what exactly in the seaweed was fixing the problem. Yep. Seaweed has lots of iodine in it. That's what was up with that. In the late 1890s, knowledge about the thyroid really started to accelerate as Adolf Magnus Levy made the connection between thyroid function and metabolic rate Radium was used to treat a patient's goiter in 1905 by physician Robert Abbey. And the term hyperthyroidism was coined in 1910 by Charles H. Mayo. But descriptions of that condition actually date back to the 1820s. And for a long time, the only real treatment for hyperthyroidism was surgery. But it was so risky that often doctors waited until a patient's illness was pretty advanced to perform the surgery. And that meant that the patient by that point was already in a weakened state, which only reduced the likelihood of a successful outcome. There was actually a pretty high mortality rate for that surgery. In 1923, Georges de Hevesy developed the idea of radioactive tracers to study metabolic pathways. A tracer, per Merriam-Webster, is a substance used to trace the course of a chemical or biological process. He went on to receive a Nobel Prize for his work, but not for another two decades. And in the early 1900s, research into thyroid function and disease was taking place in a number of different hospitals and medical research centers because it really had, as we said, accelerated in terms of what we knew about thyroid and thyroid disease in the decades leading up to that. But it was not until the 1930s that a breakthrough idea occurred to a physician to use radioactivity in the treatment of hyperthyroidism. And to get into that, we have to talk about Saul Hertz. Saul Hertz was born on April 20th, 1905 in Cleveland, Ohio. His parents, Aaron and Bertha Hertz, were Polish immigrants who raised Saul and his six brothers in an Orthodox Jewish household. After public school, Saul went to the University of Michigan and then on to medical school at Harvard. After he got his medical degree in 1929, he did his internship and residency in Cleveland before moving to Boston. Starting in 1931, he was at the thyroid clinic at Boston's Massachusetts General Hospital. And five years into his time at that position, in November of 1936, he attended a lunch at Harvard Medical School in which Carl Compton was giving a lecture. And Compton, who was the president of MIT at the time, had entitled his talk, What Physics Can Do for Biology and Medicine. And in it, he discussed the concept of making radioactive isotopes of common elements. After the lecture was over, Hertz asked Compton a question. Could iodine be made radioactive? He was thinking about a practical application of the science that Compton had discussed in the talk, which was using radioactive iodine, which theoretically only the thyroid could absorb, to address thyroid issues. Compton didn't really know the answer to the question offhand, so he noted the question, intending to follow up with Hertz later. It took a month, and when Compton followed up on it, he apologized. (laughs) That letter is dated December 15, 1936, and it reads... Dear Dr. Hertz, to my chagrin, I have just come across the memorandum which I made on your question about the radioactivity of iodine. 
Iodine can be made artificially radioactive. It has a half period of decay of 25 minutes and emits gamma rays and beta rays, electrons is put in parenthesis, with a maximum energy of 2.1 million volts. It is probable that there are several other periods of decay, but if so, they correspond to types of radioactivity like the one indicated, and they are not yet very definitely established. In his response letter, dated eight days later on December 23rd, Hertz thanked Professor Compton and wrote, quote, the fact that iodine is selectively taken up by the thyroid gland when injected into the body makes it possible to hope that iodine, which is made radioactive and which loses its radioactivity as rapidly as you indicated, would be a useful method of therapy in cases of overactivity of the thyroid gland. He then promised Carl Compton that he would relay the results of any of the tests that they conducted on animals using radioactive iodine. And Saul Hertz was ready to start exploring this idea in the lab. And we're going to talk about that after we first pause for a little sponsor break. Saul Hertz, along with James Howard Means, who was his supervisor at the hospital and was actually the man who established uh, Massachusetts General Hospital's thyroid unit in 1913, reached out to the physics community to put their plan into action. They joined forces with Robley Evans and Arthur Roberts of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to combine the work of the physicists and physicians to treat hyperthyroidism. The team started working with the isotope iodine-128, or just I-128, in rabbits in 1938. They used a test group of four dozen animals. The rabbit's thyroids took up the I-128, which was a great indicator that Hertz's idea would work. When the rabbits were tested after the I-128 was administered, it was found that their thyroid glands had, quote, nine times the concentration of radioactive iodine as that found in the liver. Additionally, the rabbits among the group with hyperplastic thyroid glands, which were glands that had additional growth from cell proliferation, had an even greater retention of radioactive iodine in the thyroid tissue than those who had healthy thyroid glands. Yeah, so the rabbits with abnormalities in their thyroids actually took up more of this radioactive isotope than uh, those that were healthy. And at this point, the I-128 was being used as a tracer to diagnose thyroid issues. It was not yet at the phase where it was being used as a treatment. In a write-up of this initial success, Hertz and his team stated, quote, It is therefore logical to suppose that when strongly active materials are available, the concentration power of the hyperplastic and neoplastic thyroid for radioactive iodine may be of clinical or therapeutic significance. This offered up hope as well for an alternative to thyroid surgery, one that was far less invasive and consequently less dangerous. This was, however, very early on. There was also one fundamental problem, that 25-minute half-life. In very basic terms, the isotope decayed so quickly that it had to be used immediately after creation or it would just be useless before it could actually treat the thyroid tissue. Hertz's Boston group was sharing their information with another team on the West Coast at the University of California, Berkeley. The California team, headed by Mayo Soli and Joseph Hamilton, conscripted the help of two other scientists, Glenn Seaborg and Jack Livingood, who had access to a cyclotron. That's an early particle accelerator apparatus that accelerates atomic and subatomic particles in a constant magnetic field. And the cyclotron had only been patented for four years before this, so it was still a very new technology. 
Using the cyclotron, Seaborg and Jack Livingood were able to create new iodine isotopes. First, I-130, with a half-life of 12 hours, and eventually I-131. I-131 has an eight-day half-life. These longer half-lives made these isotopes good candidates for Hertz's treatment. The longer half-life meant that doctors would have time to treat the problematic thyroid tissue between the isotope's creation and the point where it became useless. And as the California team was working with the cyclotron to create those new isotopes, the Boston team was working with humans to test whether their thyroids, like those of the rabbits in the earlier tests, would uptake the radioactive iodine, and they had positive results. The data collected from those early tests was also used to determine procedure and dosage guidelines for human patients uh, once they moved into the treatment phase. And once those new isotopes were established and could be replicated at the Boston lab after it had acquired its own cyclotron, it was time for a true clinical trial. In January 1941, Saul Hertz treated his first human patient with hyperthyroid using a combination of I-130 and I-131. This is a patient identified in his notes as Elizabeth D. It was the birth of nuclear medicine. It is often referred to as the first and the gold standard in targeted radionuclide therapy. Hertz and his team treated additional patients at the rate of one a month, tracking their progress after receiving the radioiodine therapy, and most of them had significant improvement in their conditions. The Cleveland Press ran a story about Hertz's work under the headline, Former Clevelander Develops First Atomic Medical Cure. After initial success with the treatment, Hertz began to take on more patients as candidates for radioiodine treatment. And in 1942, he expanded his work with radioiodine therapy and began clinical trials of treatment for patients with thyroid cancer. And this was actually something that he had begun working on, at least in its theoretical form, as early as 1937, when those initial rabbit trials for hyperthyroidism were underway. This research had gotten the attention of the medical community early on, in 1942, the Mayo Clinic arranged for one of their physicians, Dr. F. Raymond Keating, Jr., to spend six months in Boston working with the researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital to learn about their work with radioactive iodine. Later, the Mayo Clinic's Dr. Samuel Haynes wrote of this period, quote, when Ray Keating finished his fellowship, we asked Howard Means to let him go to the MGH for six months. We were especially interested in having him see what means Saul Hertz and Rulon Rolson were doing with radioiodine, a program which, as you know, was carried out with Robley Evans and Wendell Peacock from MIT. Ray's stay in Boston was very successful, and when he came back, he had arranged with Evans to have small amounts of I-131 sent to him to be used in some studies in chicks. Haynes also described the Mayo Clinic's first use of I-131 in thyroid treatment in the same writing, which was a letter that he was writing to a colleague at Cornell. And he wrote of the patient who was a woman who had been quite ill and for whom surgery would have been a highly dangerous prospect. He wrote that she had a good outcome with the I-131 treatment. So this treatment, developed through Hertz's work, was indeed, one, spreading to other clinics and being used by other doctors, and was saving people from very high-risk surgeries. But Hertz had the unfortunate timing of developing this breakthrough treatment at the same time that World War II was brewing. Saul Hertz put aside his medical research temporarily in 1943 and joined the Navy to fight against Hitler's Nazi regime. But before he shipped out, Hertz, who did not want work in this new field to be hampered by his absence, met with a private practice doctor who worked part-time at MGH, and that was Dr. Earl M. Chapman. 
Chapman had continued to make time for medical research even while running his own practice, and he was ineligible for military service. So Hertz asked him if he would keep working with Hertz's roster of thyroid patients. And Chapman, probably flattered, agreed and continued the work that Hertz had begun. But when Saul Hertz returned from the war, there were problems between the two men. Chapman didn't want to give up the project and give it back to its originator after his two years of involvement. And of course, Hertz wanted his research project back, but he wasn't given his old position at MGH. Instead, he took a position at the Beth Israel Hospital. Yeah, there are many um, stories that are told among their colleagues about the fights that broke out over this issue. Uh, And then those two former colleagues eventually found themselves just each running their own trials. And then they both wrote papers about them. And Chapman actually finished his paper first and submitted it to the Journal of the American Medical Association for review and publication. This kicked off some drama. And we will get to that paper and the rivalry between the two of them and how that was stirred up after we take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors. Chapman had beaten Hertz to the finish line on writing the paper itself. He didn't get published first. The Journal of the American Medical Association returned his paper and said it needed to be edited for length before it could be published. And in the meantime, the editor, who knew that Hertz had been the one to spearhead the work in this field and yet had not even been mentioned in Chapman's paper, reached out to Saul Hertz and encouraged him to do his own write-up as quickly as possible. So Hertz, along with Arthur Roberts, finished his own paper recounting the methods and results of his trials treating hyperthyroid patients with I-131. The end of all this jockeying was that the Journal of the American Medical Association published both the Chapman and Hertz papers, both on the same topic, both researched in the same hospital, printed in the same issue. On May 11, 1946, both scientists' findings were made available to the Journal of the American Medical Association's readership, and if nothing else, two papers on exactly the same topic with only minor differences in treatment methodology achieved one thing. It made nuclear medicine a really hot topic and established radioiodine therapy as an effective way to treat thyroid disease. Yeah, they had been writing other papers leading up to that, but that was really the paper that was like, we have figured out how to treat hyperthyroid, here's how we do it, here are the methods, and they both essentially did the same thing. Depending on whose account you read, uh, Chapman's approach was a little less careful in terms of dosage and, like, how he he managed patient treatment, but uh, they were still very, very similar. And interestingly enough, that was not the end of the squabbling over academic papers and who got credit for the research that led to this game-changing treatment. Uh, In reference to an earlier paper on the radioiodine work they were doing at MGH, Saul Hertz wrote the following letter to a Dr. Goldforb on April 12, 1938. He writes, quote, with reference to the article submitted for publication by Drs. S. Hertz and Arthur Roberts, a change is desired with the addition of Professor Robley D. Evans as a third co-author. He has shared considerably in the time devoted to this problem, and we have decided that full credit to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology cannot be given without including him as co-author. His title is Assistant Professor of Physics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and we would appreciate the addition to the authorship of him on the publication. But many years later, in 1991, Dr. Arthur Roberts wrote a scathing letter to Dr. John Stanbury, who wrote a book titled A Constant Ferment. 
is a history of the MGH thyroid clinic and the work that was done there from 1913 to 1990. Apparently, Stanbury interviewed Evans and spoke very highly of him in the book. Roberts, who had received pre-publication manuscripts, just tore into Evans in this letter. Roberts had actually worked for Evans at MIT, and according to his account, quote, Evans made it a condition of my employment, I wish I still had the letter, that his name was to appear on all publications. Even at the time, this was unusual and occasioned much comment. It led to the contretemps concerning the late addition of his name to our first paper. It was on the second paper, but after that, Saul and I felt sufficiently secure that we ignored him in our subsequent publications. Had he actually participated in the work, there would have been no problem including him. Roberts continued his takedown of Evans over the course of several pages, calling him, among other things, quote, a thoroughly unprincipled racist manipulator. He also cautioned author Stanbury, quote, I would believe nothing on this subject from Chapman, whose self-interest is obvious and who bungled, whether deliberately or not, the follow-up on Hertz's original series when Hertz joined the Navy. Apparently, despite all of Roberts' impassioned rhetoric, though Stanbury did not make changes to his manuscript, this whole mess of exchanges is a good reminder that even people who do important and groundbreaking work are often mired in their own personal conflicts that are not necessarily apparent to the outside eye. Yeah, it's such a, uh, this sort of thing does happen in academia with some frequency. Um, If you have any friends who are maybe professors or researchers, they probably have similar stories. Uh, I should also note that um, in the midst of that big shakeup, Evans went with Chapman while Roberts went with Hertz. So they sort of separated into two teams, and that's kind of why there is so much friction between them. But as for Saul Hertz, he continued his work in radioiodine therapy. In fall of 1946, he set up the Radioactive Isotope Research Fund, and a few years later, that fund paid for the establishment of the Radioactive Isotope Research Institute with offices in Boston and New York. Hertz believed that the study of thyroid cancer and research into its possible treatments could lead to breakthroughs in the treatment of all cancers, and he was happy to discuss this work with the media anytime they asked. Unfortunately, though, that work was cut short. Saul Hertz died suddenly at the age of 45, and he had a heart attack on July 28, 1950. His daughter, Barbara, who was just three when her father died, has become the steward of his story and legacy and has worked with professionals in the medical community to make sure that his contributions to medical science are documented and remembered. To that end, she's set up a digital archive online and has made some of his correspondence and research available. Yeah, I used a, a lot of that in any of these letters that we're quoting back and forth often came from her her archive. Uh, in 2016, the Society of Nuclear Medicine and Molecular Imaging established the Dr. Saul Hertz Lifetime Achievement Award to recognize those who have, quote, made outstanding contributions to radionuclide therapy. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, my personal thanks to Dr. Saul Hertz because now my cat benefited directly from his work. Uh, and that is because this process that he came up with in the 1930s, literally just after hearing a lecture and going, huh, I wonder if I could use that, um, still works. It is a very common treatment with a really high rate of success, uh, so much so that with only minor <laughs> changes, it is really pretty much uh, one of the recommended treatments today in both people and animals. Yeah. Thank you, Saul Hertz. I know people who have had it, and only one cat, which is yours. Yeah. 
Uh, yes, he went to um, what I called radio iodine sleepaway camp for a few days uh, because he was radioactive. Now he's home. We haven't had his follow-up blood work yet, but all signs point to successful outcome. Um, but it is just fascinating and cool. I, it's Like I said, it's one of those things that it is literally a 90-year-old treatment that was come up with just through like this moment of insight, and yet it is still like really benefiting people's lives and is still, as we said, the gold standard of treatment. I have another sort of um, medical thing in listener mail. It's from our listener, Stephanie, and uh, she writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, thank you so much for the Dr. Alice Hamilton episode, which I listened to with much chagrin. I'll admit when I read this letter, that scared me a little, but... (laughs) Yeah, I always kind of brace for impact. Her next sentence uh, illustrates why. She says, I spent nearly 20 years working in toxicology, occupational health, and environmental health information, and never heard of her. In fact, I spent several years uh, helping to create the site ToxTutor, which included looking at textbooks and histories of toxicology and occupational health, and I did not come across her name, which makes me sad. Uh, so she also sent us some some cute things, some uh, pens and little notepads. Um, she writes, with warm regards, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I feel like she is one of those people, Alice Hamilton, who just doesn't get credit for really all the ways many of us have benefited from her work uh, every day without even knowing it. So thank you. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And mistinhistory.com is the website where you can find all of our episodes that have ever existed and show notes for any of the ones that Tracy and I have worked on. Would you like to subscribe to the podcast? We would like for you to do that. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 